Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 is where we're going to be today. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. You guys there? We're going to look at verses 12 through 20, the end of the chapter. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. So we're going to read verses 12 to the end of the chapter, and then I'll pray, and we'll get into it together. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12. Paul writes, All things are lawful for me, but, all things are, are, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee sexual immorality. Every other sin is a, a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. And Father, I pray as we talk about a, a very timely subject, you would help us not to miss what Paul's talking about. Help us not to miss, Lord, the, the truths that you want us to see that were going on in the first century, the, the, the kind of wrong ideas that the Corinthians had. Help us, Lord, not to just get critical or judgmental or condemned by what we read, but to recognize, Lord, that you have something better for us than whatever kind of sexual ethic we think we want to hold on to. Father, I pray that you would teach us what it means to walk in your freedom. And I pray, Lord, you would free your people today. And I pray it in Jesus' name. And everyone who agrees says? So when Paul commands... Flee sexual immorality. What does he mean? What does he mean by sexual immorality? Now we know that when Paul preached at Corinth, this, this group of, of the city where, where there was full of, of pagan worship, full of, of different temples to different false gods, when Paul went there and he preached the gospel, many came to faith. And we can read about this in, one, in uh, Acts chapter 18. And when we read about it, we see that Paul spent 18 months preaching the word of God to who anyone would listen. So the way he preached Jesus to these people in Corinth, to these Gentile pagans, the way he, 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 he taught Jesus to them was by teaching them what the scripture says. Specifically, what the Old Testament scripture says about Jesus. And of course, we know that, that from the book of Acts that the first 
several thousand people to become Christians were all Jewish. And then Peter has this experience where, uh, where basically the Holy Spirit leads him to preach this guy Cornelius, this Gentile soldier. And Cornelius becomes, he gets radically saved, right? And they realize, wow, the gospel, the good news about God's chosen king, Jesus, isn't just for the Jews, but for the Gentiles, which Jesus said it would be. And they realize this. And so what happens is there's this struggle within the first early church, the first believers of Jesus, most of whom were, were, were Jews, but many of whom were Gentiles. There was this struggle with, okay, do we need these Gentiles to become Jews before they're Christians? Or maybe put another way, how much of the Old Testament law should they be under? What should they obey? So in Acts chapter 15, there's this big debate. The church is gathered together in Jerusalem, and they're discussing this issue. How much of God's law should the Gentiles, should the Gentiles have to be obedient to? And what they concluded impacts directly what we're going to talk about in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Here's what they concluded. This is from Acts chapter 15. This is part of a letter that they sent out. To the brothers who are the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements. Now remember, this is how much of the Old Testament they need to obey. He says, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood... These are two things that have to do with not stumbling other believers. We'll talk more about that when we get to chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians. And notice, and, uh, and from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Now, if Paul's and, and, the, and the believers in, in Jerusalem are wrestling through what parts of the Old Testament are still applicable to New Testament believers. And the answer is, the issues that deal with sexual immorality, guess what? Our definition for sexual immorality comes from the Old Testament. Are you following me? You follow the logic there? So, so for homework, look up Leviticus 18 and be prepared to blush. And see what the, what the Old Testament standard is for sexuality. Let me sum it up like this. Here's what it boils down to. Sex is meant only between one man and one woman in life from, in marriage. For life in marriage. That's it. That's the only outlet that God gives for sex. Now, I, I know that doesn't fit with our sexual ethic today. But you need to understand this. When that was written, 1,500 years before the church in Jerusalem, in Acts 15, decided this has got to be the standard that still holds for Gentile and Jewish believers in Jesus, when they decided that, that was 1,500 years old. And guess what? It was completely countercultural to all the pagans. So when we bring up this idea of being the sexual standard for us as 21st century Christians, we go, oh, that's outdated, that's old. It was old for them. It felt outdated to them. It felt countercultural to them. This is nothing new. It's always been countercultural. But Paul's point in 1 Corinthians 6 is not just about a moral conformity, that you need to keep this moral standard. The moral standard of sex needs to be this way. It's not just about that. It's always about, listen, it's always about a transformation of our hearts. 
It's always about us recognizing who the Lord is and what the Lord wants for us. Because what Paul's going to do here, we're going to see in this latter part of 1 Corinthians uh, 6, is he's going to show us three things that Jesus provides that are better than whatever sexual ethic we think we want to hold on to. So what are those three things? In verses 12 to 14, we're going to see the first thing that Paul wants to bring out is a better freedom through Christ's resurrection. A better freedom through Christ's resurrection. Look at verse 12. Paul says, all things are lawful for me. Now, you might notice that that's in quotations. At least in my version, in ESV, it's in quotations. In fact, he says that, that quote twice. All things are lawful for me. He says it twice in verse 12. This is what was kind of a common proverb in Corinth when Paul writes this. There's actually, we don't know for sure where it comes from, but there's actually some who believe that Paul, when he went to Corinth and was teaching the freedom that we have through the gospel, that he said something like, all things are lawful to us. We've been set free. And so they're kind of saying, okay, well, Paul, you said all things were lawful, so I'm going to go to the temple prostitutes and do my thing. And he's saying all things are lawful, but then he's quoting them, but he also says this, but all things are not helpful. All things are lawful, but he says, I will not be dominated by anything. I won't be enslaved by anything. In other words, what, what Paul's reminding them of, of something I'm sure they would have heard, he's reminding them of, listen, there is a freedom in Christ. All things are lawful. And guess what that means? You're free not to sin. You're free to learn to conform to the standards that God in his love sets for his people. You're free to do that. Now, this is something the scripture teaches over and over and over again. Jesus taught very clearly that sin is slavery and that he frees us from it. Listen to this. In, in John chapter 8, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. And if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. What does that mean? We don't have to be slaves to our sin. We are sinners, no doubt. Sin every day, no doubt. But we can say, Lord, you set me free, so I want, to turn, I want to learn to walk in that liberty. It's not freedom to sin, it's freedom from sin. Paul, Paul taught a similar thing. In fact, Paul taught us that we, should, we can choose who we serve. In Romans chapter 6, verse 16, Paul says, Do you not know that if, if, you, uh, if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one to whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. As Bob Dylan sang in the 60s, you got to serve somebody. And the reality is, listen, this is what the, the scripture is teaching, that apart from Christ, we're a slave to sin, and we can try to serve any other kind of God or religion and still find ourselves in bondage to whatever that sin is, sexual or something else. But in Christ... We're set free. We can actually be changed. As we talked about last week, he gives us new affections. And when we have new affections, what, what, what comes from that? New behaviors. See, the goal is not just new behaviors. It's new affections. It's a new life. Paul would go on to say in Galatians chapter 5, verse 13, he would teach us that freedom means loving and serving others before ourselves. Paul, Paul writes in Galatians 5.13, For you are called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. 
We don't want to make this mistake of thinking, I'm free in Christ so I can do whatever I want. You can, as long as what you want is what God wants. Now, here's where the rub comes in. Where the rub comes in is that we don't like that what we want might be wrong. We don't like that. And, and what we really need to learn as beloved children of our Heavenly Father is that what He wants for us is better than what we want for ourselves. So that we say, Lord, okay, I want this thing. And I know your Bible, your word says I, I, I'm not to pursue that thing, but I want this thing, so I need you to change my affections. I need to learn to want what you want me to want. This is where, like Psalm, is it Psalm 37, 4, delight yourself in the Lord, he'll give you the desires of your heart. This is where that comes in. God, I'm delighting in you. I want this. I know that's a bad thing, but I want you more. I'm delighting myself in you, so you give me the desires of my heart. Because when God gives us new desires, guess what happens? He then gives us those desires. So Paul's saying, listen, there's a better freedom through Christ's resurrection. You might go, well, how do you know this is about resurrection? How do you connect this to resurrection? Look at verse 13 and 14. In verse 13, what does Paul say? Paul, again here, is quoting a, a proverb that was famous in Corinth. Some of your versions, like when I'm reading ESV, has the quote, stopping after food. Others, I think NIV or others, has the quotations after the word other. I think that's probably better. But just follow me this. What does it say? Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. I think that was the mindset of the Corinthians. Here's why. Because the Greek mindset, the Roman and Greek mindset about the human body was that the human body is more evil than the human spirit. Because their idea of creation was God, uh, creation is what emanated from this kind of first uncaused cause. Creation just kind of emanated from this first uncaused cause. And so it first emanated in spiritual beings or small gods, then it emanated into, into like uh, more like angelic type beings, then it emanated into, uh, into um, uh, creation, and then it emanated to, into animal forms and so on and so forth. So, so the farther down creation, it's a farther away emanation, it's more evil. So that kind of the human spirit came before the human body, therefore uh, it's better. And God's going to destroy the human body anyway. That's a Greek or Roman way to look at the, the, the physical universe, and specifically the human body. It's not the biblical way. It's not the, the, what God says about humanity or about the universe, the created universe. So, so here, here's what God says. In... in, in Genesis chapter 1, God sums up all the days of creation with the creation of man. What does he say? So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God saw that everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. God makes the physical universe, culminating with, the, with, with male and female image bearers. And he says, it's very good. Not like, it's all right, not as good as the spirits that are there, but it's all right. No, it's very good. God's view of the physical is it's holy because it comes from him. Are you following me in this? This is a really important truth. 
You might go, it's kind of a bit esoteric and philosophical. No, this is foundational for our thinking. Follow me on this. Paul's point to them is, listen, you're beginning to think more and more like a Greek, like a worldly person about creation, but that's not how we should think. How we need to, what we need to see here is there's a sanctity to the physical. Again, you know what proves this? Paul says in verse 14, the resurrection of Jesus. Look at verse 14. Paul says, and God raised, raised the Lord, that's the Lord Jesus, who will also raise up uh, raise us up by his power. In other words, because Christ was physically resurrected from the dead, we can know will be physically resurrected the dead. Paul's going to get into this in 1 Corinthians 15. But this justifies, or this underscores, why we believe there's a sanctity to the physical. There's a sanctity to all life. This is one of the reasons why, listen, we don't kill people because they're handicapped or because they have mental problems or because they can't really do much for society. We don't kill them. Nazis did. We don't. Do you know why we don't? Because we believe what God says about the physical universe. That's where that comes from. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that only Christians don't kill people that have handicaps. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that idea, the reason we don't do that in Western culture is because of the influence of a Christian worldview, a biblical worldview. Are you guys following me? But that same thing connects to our sexuality. That God made us physical, and in making us physical, he says there's something holy about that physicality. Does, this seem, does that sound weird to you? Does, it, does, that, does that feel kind of like, mm, I'm, not, I'm not too sure? Because it, it just should be normal to you, especially you guys who are Jesus followers, been professing Christ for a long time. This should be foundational to you, that God created the world and said it was good, that the physical world is good. And we should see it that way. But the resurrection, listen, isn't just about underscoring the sanctity of the physical. It is that, but it's more than that. It's also, listen, about this reality that, that Christ's resurrection provides for our resurrection, both the future, 1 Corinthians 15, we'll get into that, but also that resurrection power working in us right now. And this connects to our sexual holiness. Listen, Paul says in Romans chapter 6, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ raised from the dead, uh, from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk, this is right now, in newness of life. The physical resurrection, the power that raised Jesus to the dead, he's in this eternal physical body that he has, that same power is working in us to change us and how we live physically. Now, if you know me at all, you know I like my food. I really do like my food. I, I, I'll be clearly honest, I find fasting very difficult. Not because I can't stand not eating physically, because I just really like food. I find it really difficult to fast. Do you know anything that motivates me to fast? Well, I'll, say, I'll tell you, what, what doesn't motivate me to fast? What doesn't motivate me to fast is uh, somehow I'm going to be pleasing to God because I like food too much. What motivates me to fast is I want God more than I want the food. 
I'm going to say it. I like sex. I'm so thankful that I'm married to a, a wife that loves me. But guess what? You know what motivates me to abstain from sexual immorality, from sex outside of marriage, or even when it's appropriate for Sarah and I to abstain? You know what motivates that? I want God more than I want that. Because the God who made the good gift of food and a body to enjoy that, and the God that made the good gift of sex and the body to enjoy that, is better than that. You see, here, here's the reality, right? What the Corinthians were doing was, they weren't so much just kind of like having friends with benefits or any of the kind of other sexual compromises that we might be tempted to have as, as 21st century people. No, what they were doing is literally going to temple prostitutes and thinking, well, that's what they're there for. And that's what our bodies are for. In the same way our bodies are meant to enjoy food, we just enjoy it. It doesn't really matter how much we glut ourselves, which is probably one of the sins that Christians don't often repent of. It doesn't matter how much we glut ourselves. That's what the body's for. It's all going to be destroyed anyway. But actually, is the body going to be destroyed? It's going to be resurrected. The physical is going to be resurrected. If you have this picture of heaven being where you're some weird sort of ghost-like creature playing a harp on a cloud or something like that, no. Heaven and earth come together. That's the picture that the scripture gives us. The physical is still there. Now, we think in this modern day thing, what I really need is I, my body's made for sex. I'm meant to be sexually happy and fulfilled. Therefore, I need a partner or a new partner or a different partner or multiple partners or whatever you want to do. You think this is what you need, but you need to understand what Paul's saying. One, you don't have to do that as a Christian, you're free. And you're free to something better. Listen, better than a new partner is a new life you get in Christ. It's better. He provides that for us through his resurrection, a new life. Do you know what helps overcome lust? When we recognize God you are more worthy of my worship than that person I'm lusting after. You are more worthy than that. Or you're more worthy to be worshipped than this, this strong drive in my heart for sexual satisfaction. You're more worthy of worship than that. You're better than that. And you've made a way for me through your death and resurrection to walk with you in this. You guys following me? So that's the first thing. The first thing that, that Christ provides that's better than any kind of sexual practice we want is a better freedom through his resurrection. Here's the second thing. A better oneness with his spirit. What do we mean by that? Look at verse 15. In verse 15, Paul writes, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? Now, this is a really disturbing thing that, that, that Paul's painting. Paul's painting here that, that in, in, in some sort of mysterious way, the spirit of Christ who dwells in us, that he experiences, this is, he experiences our sexual sin. 
So guys, when you're looking at our girls, <laughs> when you're looking at pornography, you're making Jesus look at pornography. So when you're having sex outside of marriage, you're making Jesus have sex outside of marriage. It's horrendous to think about, isn't it? It's, 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 it's repulsive. But in some way, there's something there. And this is the, the reason why. Our oneness with Jesus identifies both who we are and how we grow. So we have to take that oneness seriously. Paul writes this in Romans chapter 8. He says, for in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. As we'll see, the Spirit is what brings it, makes us one. The Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to God. So listen, to be one with Christ is to be made, that oneness is brought by the Spirit, by God's Holy Spirit, or as, as, it's, as he's called here, the Spirit of Christ. There's a oneness, a spiritual union that is as real, actually in one sense it's more real, but it's as real as any kind of physical union you would have with somebody. And, and here's, the, here's the reality. This, this is what our identity is. We're identified by this union with Christ, this oneness with Christ. But also, this is how we grow. This is what we're called to grow up into. Paul says this in Ephesians chapter 4. He says, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head. We're his body. We're his members. Into Christ from whom the whole body grows. It's this unity, this, the fact that by the Spirit we've been placed into God's family because of what Jesus did for us. And we're unified together, but we're also unified with Christ. We're one with Christ. And because we're one with Christ, when we join to a prostitute, or we join to another person in sexual union, we bring Christ with us. Now, this is a hard thing to think about, isn't it? Even as a happily married person, it's a hard thing to think about. But actually, what you realize is that as a happily married person, as someone in a good one man, one woman for life marriage, when you come together sexually, God blesses that. He's pleased with that. He's happy with us for that. I hope Sarah doesn't get offended that I'm bringing this. I didn't ask for permission to this, but it's not too graphic or anything. But, but there's, there's, times, there's been times when Sarah and I have prayed before we're going to be intimate. Maybe we're just stressed out and it's been a while, or maybe, maybe we're just struggling. And so we say, Lord, we, 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 we want to be able to love each other the way you want us to love each other. So would you give us the freedom to do that right now? Hope this doesn't creep you out, Sorry. But, but the, here's the reality. Listen, in the same way God, the Lord Jesus blesses a sexual union between one man and one woman in marriage for life, in the same way he blesses that, he curses when we do that farther out. And this is what we need to recognize, as horrendous as it sounds, is that we, we actually drag Christ into our junk when we do this. If you drop down to verse 18... After Paul says, flee sexual immorality, he gives this really interesting phrase. He says, every other sin in a, a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Now, this is tricky, because to be honest, it sounds almost wrong. Because if I'm being gluttonous, aren't I sinning against my own body? If I'm doing drugs or, or abusing alcohol, am I not sinning against my own body? 
We, we are, but not in the same way. They're not in the same way because there's something potent, something powerful about the sexual union that God says it must be guarded in this certain way. It has to be kept in a certain, certain sanctity. Now, now, here's what's interesting, right? This is why. Look at verse 16, the second part of verse 16. What does Paul write? He says, Uh, after he says that, the, you know, don't join yourself to a prostitute, he says, for it, as it is written, the two will become one flesh. He's quoting Genesis 2-4 there. He says, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. One of the potencies about sexual union is it's meant to point past the sexual union to our relationship with God. Again, this is what's creepy. This is what makes feels creepy to us because we have so soiled sexuality. We have so made it something that is just about a physical release, that it's just about an appetite being satisfied, that we miss why God created it in the first place. God creates sex to be between one man and one woman so the two that are different become one and they complement each other. For an intimacy that's not to be shared anywhere else, it's an exclusive, beautiful, lifelong intimacy. You know what it's supposed to point to? An exclusive, beautiful, eternal intimacy that we're going to have with God. Can you see why the scripture is so clear about keeping the sexual ethic? What's at stake when we don't? Now, we're going to talk more about that in marriage next week in chapter 7. But just to be, make sure you know I'm not making this up. I'm not reading this into this. Paul says this very explicitly in Ephesians chapter 5. Paul says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, quoting the same Genesis 2.4. He says, This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Do you see that? That God's purpose, his eternal purpose in creating marriage is to show something about Christ. Now you go, well, what about the single? What about the person that has to be single? Or the person that just would like to be married, but they can't be married yet? What about them? That's next week. But there's good news for you, don't worry. There's good news. Because the greatest person you'll ever be married to is Jesus Christ. And when you know him, it's what makes marriage worth all the pain and stuff. It's, you married people know what I'm talking about. They're there. See, here's the reality. Better than the best sex you can have is the love of God that, brought us, is, that we've been brought into through Jesus. By far. So he... Christ provides a better freedom through the resurrection... He provides a better oneness through his spirit who dwells in us. But also, listen, he provides a better identity through his blood. We live in a day and age where one of the main markers of our identity is our sexuality. That's nothing new either, really. It's just been brought front and center now. But God has something better in mind. So I want you to drop down to verse 19. What does Paul say in verse 19? He says, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. 
You were bought with a price. Do you recognize the price that was paid for you to set you free? Do you recognize it? Seriously. Do you understand the price that was paid to set you free so that you don't have to live for your sexuality? When Paul says that we're a temple of the Holy Spirit, he's here now, obviously in this context, talking about an individual. If you remember back in chapter 3, when Rory taught us that the temple of the Spirit refers to the, the people of God in general. And it's the idea that God dwells in his people. When we're gathered like this, the Holy Spirit is here with us right now. God is with us right now. We should honor him. We should honor him by the way we love each other. We should honor him by the way we worship. We should honor him by the way we hear his word. We should honor him. He's with us. We should worship him. In the same way he's with us corporately, he's with us individually. He dwells in us by his Holy Spirit. Do you understand? It's a privilege. This is what makes us his people. He's among us and he's in us. But also, this is the part maybe that's really hard for us to get our head around. And maybe this is, this is why, this could be why you're so struggling with your identity issues. I know it's why I struggle with my identity issues. Because I often want to identify as a pastor or an elder. My identity is what I do for God's people. But that's the wrong identity. Our identity is something more than this. What does he say? Listen. He says, you are not your own. You know what he's saying here by you've been bought with a price? Paul's using a slave market metaphor. Paul is literally saying this. Listen, you are a slave to sin, but Christ bought you. He purchased you, so now you're his slave. Now you might say to yourself, I ain't nobody's slave. I only serve myself. Yeah, then you're a slave to sin. That's the way it works. But, but he, here's what he did. God paid the ultimate price for us. The, in the book of Acts, Paul speaking to elders whom he wants to make sure they take care of God's people. He says, care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Peter says a similar thing in 1 Peter chapter 1. I'm reading now from the New Living Translation where Peter says, For you know that God paid a ransom to save you from the empty life you inherited from your ancestors, and it was not paid with mere gold or silver, which lose their value. It was the precious blood of Christ, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. Do you recognize the price paid for your freedom? Are you living as a free person? You see, this price paid, it's also, listen, our eternal identity. That we're, we're identified eternally by the fact that we've been ransomed or bought out of slavery by Christ's blood. Listen to this, Revelation chapter 5. This is the praise to God. Worthy are you, just a praise to Jesus, worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals for you were slain and your blood was ransomed for, for the people of God from every tribe and nation and people and language, everyone. So though we have different cultures and different languages, things that each, even will echo into eternity, our identity is what? We've been bought with a price. Are you following me? 
Do you realize the price paid to give you a new identity? When I was in high school, I've been talking a lot about my heathen high school days, haven't I? It's because the Corinthians were so corrupt, that's what I have to go back to. When I was in high school, I bragged about my sexual conquests as a teenager. And it got to a point where I was going to, I won't get into what it what it was, it's, it's too shameful, but I was going to somehow make a public display of this. This is before social media. I was just going to have a, a, something on my letterman's jacket that kind of showed that I had these sexual conquests because that was my identity. I wasn't a great athlete, to be honest. I definitely wasn't a great student. I wasn't even always a nice guy, but I felt like I was good with the ladies. Actually, I was just a creep. But I because I so identified that because my brothers, because of my brothers and even my peers were like, dude, you can talk any girl into anything. Man, that's amazing. That was my identity. I'm so ashamed of that. The damage I did to other people. I'm so ashamed of that. But what delivered me from that was not God removing a desire, a bodily desire for sex. No. What delivered me from that was a new identity. A new identity. Because that old John was crucified with Christ, was buried with Christ, and a new John was raised from the dead. So that my identity now has nothing to do with my sexuality. It has everything to do with Christ. Therefore, I want to honor Christ with my sexuality. You guys follow me with that? Is it really, seriously, and I don't don't mean this disrespectfully, and I don't mean this insensitively, because I recognize that your sexual temptations might be much more difficult to deal with than mine were. I do realize that. But is there any difference? Seriously? If you identify with an LGBTQ+, if you are on that spectrum in some way, you feel like you identify that spectrum, can you see that maybe what you really need is not just a new sexual ethic, but to recognize your new identity in Christ? Does that make sense? I hope hope you guys don't think I'm being insensitive. But that's what we need. For you guys that are married, maybe the, one of the reasons you're having problems in your sexual relationship with your spouse is because you're identified by being able to please your spouse. If my spouse wanted to me more or I could please them more, then I'd feel better about myself. Wait a second. How can you feel better about yourself than what God says about you in Christ? Can you see how these are, there's an identity thing here connected to our sexuality? God gives us a better identity through his blood, through the blood of Christ. But also the first part of verse 18 again, he gives us through, through his blood, through his sacrifice, the motivation to flee sexual immorality. And he says so plainly, right? Verse 18, flee sexual immorality. Not sachet, not dance around it, run, take off. You guys remember the Old Testament story in Genesis of Joseph? Joseph sold him into slavery to this guy named Potiphar. By his brother, sold him into slavery. He's there. The Bible says of Joseph that he was uh, uh, handsome in appearance and form. That means he was good-looking buff. He was yoked. This guy's there, and the, the wife of the house lusts after him and says, come lie with me. And he goes, how can I do this and sin against God? He literally, when she tried to tear his clothes off, he literally ran out the house. You know what happened to Joseph? He actually got sent to jail for that. 
for doing the right thing. But you know what motivated him to flee? His identity with the God of the scriptures. Lastly, look at verse, the last part of verse 20. You're bought with a price, so what do we do? So glorify God in your bodies. To glorify God, listen, is to, is to know God and to make God known as this one-of-a-kind loving God. There's none like him. So to glorify God is to accurately make him known, to know him and to make him known. That's what it means to glorify God, to recognize his unique value. There's no one like him. Now, how does that work with sex? Because if sex is one man, one woman in life, and you know, no one's supposed to know kind of what we do. I was probably pushing the line a little bit today. Hopefully I won't get told off by Sarah. But the, but the reality is, is that you know, no one's really, just, it's private. So how, how does this work? Well, how it works is, we're committed to the right biblical standard for sexuality. It doesn't just mean this too. It's not just one woman, one man in marriage for life, but it means one woman, one man who put each other's knees before their own. Adam will talk about this next week. It means that we want a marriage that glorifies God, that we're willing to abstain when it's healthy for us to abstain, and we're willing to come together when it's healthy for us to come together. I'm going to uh, close with a story. When I was in high school and that creepy, horrible guy that I was, I was also an art student. And I was doing pretty well in art. And so doing well enough, had enough projects done so that my art teacher uh, asked me to help the other students. And so I took that as an opportunity to flirt with as many girls as I could. So I'm flirting with these girls, and he's always shaking his head, and he's always pulling me aside and saying, Mr. Brown, what are you doing? Knock it off. Help them. Stop flirting with them. And this guy, Mr. Talley, was uh, a Christian. And I knew he was a Christian. He was a lovely guy, uh, tennis player, athletic, good-looking guy. And so he starts asking me, what, what's, my, what's, what's my deal? Why do you always flirt with girls? And so I told him, basically, it's because I'm trying to woo them so I can do what I want to do. And I'm like, come on, Mr. Talley, you know what it's like. You're a guy. You know, you're good-looking. You're a athletic. You know what it's like. You're a guy. And he goes, well, actually, in a sense, I don't know what it's like. He was in his early 30s, and he had never had sex. And I seriously thought, how are you alive? <laughs> I, and I don't mean that as a joke. I mean that seriously. I really thought, I had this picture that if you're a guy with the sexual drive, if you don't find an outlet for that sexual drive, you just like, boom, you explode or something. <laughs> as, as crazy as it sounds, I thought, you don't, do you have a heart attack after a certain time? And what actually happens? I was pretty stupid, like I said. But the thing was, I said, no, that can't be true. And he goes, well, you don't have to believe me, but it's true. I've never, ever had any kind of sexual relationships with anybody. And it blew me away. And I started asking Mr. Talley, why? What would motivate you? Now, <laughs> as a, a teacher in American schools, you can't, even if you ask that question, you've got to be careful what you say. So we'd go to these art uh, displays, these, these, these different uh, fairs and stuff where they're showing art and uh, exhibitions. And he would always say, hey, let's go check out this one. The, the, any art, artist that had like a kind of religious theme. And he knew that it would provoke me to ask questions. So I asked him questions, really specific questions. What's the deal about that cross? I know it's got something to do with God. Well, here's what happened. Jesus died on that cross. He just got to share the gospel with me. And it made such an impact on my life that, that gosh, this guy who's never had sex, 
is much freer than me who's always trying to have sex. And so when I got saved, guess who was the first person I went to tell? And I remember walking into the class. I, I snuck into the school, which is I was still kind of a bad guy. And I, so I snuck into the school. You're not supposed to do this. And I went into his class, and I opened the door, and I said, I said, Mr. Talley, and he looked at me, and he goes, it happened. He knew that God had done something radical in my life to free me from this, and he had. He absolutely had. And it wasn't a new morality. It was a transformation of heart. It was freedom. Folks, I don't know where you're at with your walk with Jesus. I don't know what you believe. And I I don't know for sure how you're dealing with the issues of sexuality. But here's what I want to be really plain to you about. Okay, listen. Not only is there the standard of one man, one woman in marriage for life. Not only is there that's the standard that God calls us to, but also, listen, that's the standard that God equips us for. Because it's not about marriage. It's not about sex. It's about Jesus. It's about knowing him and making him known. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that you've given us something better than our sexual identity. You've given us a new identity that you actually purchased for us with your own blood. Thank you, Lord, for sending Jesus that we might be set free. And Father, I just pray for anyone here who's struggling. Lord, who's struggling with sexual sin or sexual identity. I pray, Lord, that you would indeed, by your Holy Spirit, set them free by this truth. Please, Lord. We know that our temptations are many. And we know in one sense we're not completely free from temptation until we see you face to face. We're not even free from sin until we see you face to face. But, Lord, you can teach us how to glorify you with our bodies. And so we pray you'd show us how to do this. And I pray if someone here doesn't know you, that they would know that you're willing to save them and to forgive them and to change them. Lord, would you grant them faith and repentance right now by your Holy Spirit, please? For we pray this in Jesus' name and everyone who agrees says, amen. So we're gonna be available to pray uh, after service. I just wanna make a disclosure. Some people have already asked for prayers today that have nothing to do with sexuality. So I just want to make sure that uh, you don't think that everyone's coming up to us going, oh, they must be, oh, okay. <laughs> Let's not do that. Let's not do that. Uh, there's lots of people who have already said, hey, can we have some time of prayer afterwards? That's, there's, there's plenty of people doing that. So don't guess. Don't think you know. Don't judge, okay? Um, but you know what? Let's, let's, let's encourage each other in this. Let's stir each other up in this, that we would be those that walk in holiness. Amen? Amen. Bless you guys. Hope to see you guys. Uh, hope to see any, any of you men. If any men want to go to this thing on Saturday, can you let me know? Because I need a ride. So if someone wants to drive, I'd love a ride uh, on Saturday, all right? Bless you guys. We'll see you soon.